Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jamie Boskett, and I'm the president and CEO of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And on behalf of our board of trustees, my colleagues, our staff, our volunteers, everyone who loves this place, I'd like to welcome you all to this special virtual presentation of the 28th annual J. Harvey Wilkinson Jr. Lecture. As most of you know, this lecture is named in loving memory of one of the leading figures in Virginia banking, Harvey Wilkinson. He was respected in financial circles here and well beyond the Commonwealth, but he's also remembered for his deep interest in promoting education and history at all levels. It's fitting, so fitting really, that this lecture, one of the preeminent uh, events of the year for us, uh, featuring some of the country's most distinguished historians, writers, and public figures is named in his memory. It's an honor for us to be able to host it, and we're so thrilled to be able to bring it to all of you. This series, of course, was made possible uh, through the generosity and the gifts to the Historical Society from the Wilkinson family at large. And I am so honored that they continue to support our institution, its mission with such passion, and to, to have them as friends. It's, it's also uh, it's, it's rather an honor. I'd like to extend a special thank you now uh, to the family members that are with us this evening. Uh, thrilled to have you. And also to extend that thank you to everyone else who has uh, supported this lecture and our members in particular, uh, you all have supported this program, many like it, and this institution overall. I hope that you have no doubt that this place survives, especially now during such an incredible period of disruption and challenge. It survives through the steadfast support of you, our members, our supporters, so we give you our thanks. You've allowed us this year to do what many thought impossible. We have avoided any COVID-related staff furloughs or cuts. We have deployed one of the best portfolios of digital content across Virginia and across the nation, reaching more people than we ever have before. And maybe the most important and most lasting, we've been able to, uh, as part of our long-term strategy and with the generosity of several, to begin one of the most transformative renovations in our entire history. We will be ready to do big things when the world comes back together. We will be ready to lead the state's commemoration of America's 250 coming up in 2026. We will be ready to begin our third century of service as an institution to you, our members, and to the Commonwealth. So for all those reasons, I, I just wanna extend our deep and sincere appreciation for sticking with us, uh, for enjoying all this content when you can't be at the museum, you can still be learning at home and appreciating the unparalleled story of this Commonwealth. It's now my pleasure to introduce our speaker. Harold Holzer is one of the country's leading authorities on Abraham Lincoln and the political culture of the Civil War era. He serves as the Jonathan F. Fanton Director of Hunter College's Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute, co-chairman of the Lincoln Forum and chairman of the Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. Harold is a prolific writer and lecturer and frequent guest on television. Harold has authored and co-authored and edited 42 books, including Lincoln, President-Elect, Abraham Lincoln and the Great Secession Winter, 1860 to 1861, Lincoln at Cooper Union, the speech that made Lincoln president, Lincoln and the Power of the Press, the War for Public Opinion, and most recently, The Presidents versus the Press the endless battle between the White House and the media from the founding fathers to fake news. 
His many awards include the Lincoln Prize and the National Humanities Medal. Tonight, of course, Harold will be speaking to us about his most recent book, The Presidents Versus the Press, The Virginians, Washington, Jefferson, and Wilson. We're so thrilled to have him with us. We're thankful for all of you. I hope you enjoy this evening. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for that lovely introduction. And uh, thanks also to the uh, Wilkinson family for, for the honor of, of uh, serving as their annual lecturer and to Graham Dozier who arranged my appearance uh, virtually tonight. I wish I could have been with you in Richmond. I was so looking forward to the trip. Um, this is certainly the next best thing to being there and I'm very grateful. So, um, when I proposed this topic about distilling my book into a, a deep dive into the Virginia presidents and their relationship to the press, um, I was excited about it. And I thought if I was going to do this uh, as a film project, I would, I would make my opening scene August 2, 1793. Um, for my prop man, I would say, get me one broadsheet newspaper and two Virginia presidents, one current and one future. Um, the event that I will describe was recorded by Thomas Jefferson in his diary. The setting is the cabinet room in the executive mansion in the nation's capital, Philadelphia. Well, that day, Washington glimpsed a caricature of himself, taunting him for tilting foreign policy toward England. He was used to those charges, but perhaps not used to the, the visualization of it, which showed him being brought to the guillotine. As Jefferson recorded it, Washington, and I quote, got into one of those passions when he cannot command himself, defied any man on earth to produce one single act of his since he has been in the government, which was not done on the purest motives. And then he threw the paper to the ground, stomped on it, for good measure, and said, by God, Jefferson recalled, he'd rather be in his grave than in his present situation. Well, the irony of this scene, aside from the, the disbelief uh, that the cabinet members must have um, demonstrated to see Washington in such a temper, was that if it wasn't for his own Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, the situation might never have occurred. And by that, I mean that Jefferson, perhaps just a few months before, made the moves that totally changed forever the relationships between presidents and what we now call the media. Jefferson believed, and you may have heard this quote before, that no government ought to be free of censors. So he put his money, or rather the taxpayer money, where his mouth was. He imported an anti-administration newspaper and editor from New York to the nation's capital, Philadelphia, and set up its editor to attack the very administration that he, Jefferson, worked for. Um, by the way, he also gave him a job in the State Department to act as sort of a subvention for this adventure. Needless to say, the first president to complain about fake news was the first president. George Washington hated it when, as he put it, the editors of the different gazettes in the Union first began stuffing their papers with scurrility and nonsensical defamation. 
especially when it focused on him. Now, the double irony is that George Washington had been uh, deified by the press uh, from the Revolutionary War on through the first term of his presidency. And he had been quite friendly in return. In fact, he, he fought for lowering the postal rates for newspapers, most of whom, whose subscribers were reached by the US mails. And moreover, he took office when newspaper circulation was exploding. That is, in 18th century terms. Even those two newspapers operating in Philadelphia, the official administration paper and the opposition paper Jefferson imported, only published a few times a week and reached, well, perhaps 2,000 subscribers in town. George, George Washington did have the longest press honeymoon in American history. Um, perhaps subsequent presidents thought they too would have four years of relative praise, but Washington guaranteed it through his own administration paper, John Ward Fenno's Gazette of the United States. Um, Alexander Hamilton, the Treasury Secretary, made sure to secure it government printing contracts to keep it flourishing. It never really flourished, but it survived. All of this was too much for Jefferson. So he got a fellow named Philip Freno, who had been James Madison's college roommate, um, and an a, a actual victim of the British during the revolution. He was imprisoned rather harshly to establish a pro-Jefferson paper, the National Gazette. It must have been confusing in Philadelphia, I suppose, to have two editors in town with similar names, Fenno and Freno, um, editing two papers uh, with similar names, both called Gazettes, but there the similarities ended. One praising Washington and one ratcheting up a level of criticism to which Washington had never been subjected. Meanwhile, a fellow named Benjamin Franklin Bache launched the Philadelphia Aurora. He was educated and trained in printing by his famous grandfather, Washington's one-time revolutionary colleague, Benjamin Franklin. But Bache was convinced that George Washington had kind of dissed Franklin and decided to aim volleys at him as well. So the, by the beginning of Washington's second term, he was criticized on policy, like the Jay Treaty, uh, criticized for tilting foreign policy toward the British, but also vilified in a manner that he had never been subjected to for leaving Washington, I'm sorry, leaving Philadelphia during a congressional session, which apparently was verboten, even though it was to fight the Whiskey Rebellion, for flaunting about in uh, expensive uh, uh, ornate horse-drawn carriages, for forcing people to celebrate his own birthday, for stately journeying through the American continent in search of personal incense. Well, Washington was annoyed, of course, but the Aurora, for one, wasn't done. They began say, charging him with uh, faking his expense accounts. And Washington didn't take a salary as president, uh, but he did take expenses, um, acting badly during the French and Indian War and on and on. Most of it was personal. Most of it was meant to attack the character uh, about which he was so proud. By 1796, uh, another election year, George Washington was fuming, but, but only privately, to Thomas Jefferson 
that these newspapers were indecent, as indecent as they are void of truth and fairness. He believed he'd been targeted for what he called the grossest and most insidious misrepresentations as could be applied to Nero or even a common pickpocket. I guess you could say he was angry. Um, now he declines to run for a third term. And um, according to legend, he did so because he did not want to create a monarchical precedent. He did not want to be a permanent president and wanted no one else to be a permanent president. But as he confided to his friend, Henry Knox, he had a disinclination to be longer buffeted in the public prints by a set of infamous scribblers. He paid them all back when he wrote his farewell address. He called in a non-partisan newspaper and gave the exclusive printing to a perfectly astonished fellow who was smart enough to ask Washington for the manuscript as a keepsake. And he, he got one of the most valuable, valuable documents in American letters as a result. That farewell address, by the way, is widely known. It used to be read in Congress on Washington's birthday. But there's one quote from it that I love, even though it was not in the final farewell address. And let me read it to you. This is Washington. Some of the gazettes of the United States have teemed with all the invective that disappointment, ignorance of facts, and malicious falsehoods could invent to, to misrepresent my politics and affections, to wound my reputation and feelings, and to weaken if not entirely destroy the confidence you were pleased to repose in me. It might be expected at the parting scene of my public life that I should take notice of such virulent abuse. Well, if you don't recognize that passage, it's because Alexander Hamilton, his ghostwriter and editor, told him to drop the paragraph because it was too self-pitying. And so it was, so it was cut. What Washington called exaggerated and odious newspaper articles from the anti-federalist press followed him all the way to Mount Vernon. Um, he was attacked by Thomas Paine as, as treacherous in private friendship as he is a hypocrite in public life. That got big play in the Republican newspapers. And finally, the Philadelphia Aurora wrote, if ever a nation was debauched by a man, the American nation has been debauched by Washington, all caps for Washington. That was the work of a journalist uh, named James T. Callender. Stay tuned for more about Mr. Callender. Well, Washington took it personally, but also worried about the effect of what he called the malignant industry would have, whether it might weaken, if not destroy the confidence of the public, not just in him, but in the country itself. In other words, George Washington speculated that the attacks represented a journalism that might be called the enemy of the people. It's small wonder that he would support, in principle, the Sedition Act that his successor, John Adams, imposed on the press uh, when his term began after Washington's retirement. And under that act, a clear violation of the Constitution, Congress made it a federal crime to ridicule or criticize the president. And John Adams, of course, encouraged his attorney general to prosecute uh, at least 17 newspapers personally, editors of which faced fines and imprisonment. Washington 
like many presidents, ended his life hating the press, but still unable to resist the press. A visitor to Mount Vernon during his final illness discovered him sitting in his parlor, hoarsely trying to read aloud from a newspaper. Well, that brings us to Mr. Jefferson, who played such a role in um, bringing opposition and partisan newspapers to Philadelphia. He was also one of the strongest opponents of Adams' Sedition Act. The question is, and I'd like to raise it and continue it as a thread throughout the Jefferson section, did he oppose it because he really believed what he wrote about absolute freedom of the press, which he did? Well, not exactly. Ever the state's rights man, he simply believed libel should be prosecuted at the state level and prosecute or encourage such prosecutions, he would. As always, Jefferson spoke a very good game. The press, he said, offered the only toxin of a nation, the only alarm bell it had against tyranny. Um, he famously said, if it were left to me uh, to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to choose the latter. Our liberty, he said on another occasion, depends on the freedom of the press. And that cannot be limited without being lost. Great words, but as often happens with Jefferson, the actions are a little more complicated. He loved the press, or at least the press that loved him. He, like others who would follow, thought he could manipulate the press. Adams called him a great protector of his own journalists, but not those who criticized him. Now, he was wise about managing the press, as we have heard from the way he imported Mr. Freno to Philadelphia during the Washington era. Well, he told Freno to stay in Philadelphia. Um, and as the capital moved finally to Washington, so I don't have to trip up on that anymore, um, he created his own administration newspaper to cover the news and be lavished with printing contracts in the new federal capital. He encouraged Thomas Ritchie to found your paper, the Richmond Examiner, Samuel Harrison Smith to establish the National Intelligencer in Washington. Um, but he misjudged the aforementioned James T. Callender. Callender had supported Jefferson and attacked Washington, and now in Richmond, he thought that he was due a reward. He had suffered for his loyalty. He had been prosecuted under the Sedition Act. He had gone to prison in Richmond and uh, been fined. Jefferson sympathized. Um, he even contributed $50 toward paying off Calendar's fine. Uh, but Calendar now wanted to be postmaster of Richmond, easily within Thomas Jefferson's power to make that um, reward. Um, Federalists had been in charge of federal patronage for 12 years. It was kind of an easy ask, but Jefferson didn't like the way the ask was made. He thought that Calendar was asking him for hush money, and he insisted he knows nothing of me which I am not willing to declare myself. Well, not quite. Um, Calendar, disillusioned and angry, published the pamphlet that asserted, it is well known that the man whom it delighteth the people to honor keeps 
and for many years past has kept as his concubine one of his slaves. Her name is Sally, and the name of her eldest son is Tom, and his features are said to bear striking, though sable, resemblance to those of a president. Yes, it was Calendar, the disgruntled, disappointed journalist turned office seeker who published the Sally Hemings story that would haunt Jefferson and his reputation for two centuries. Well, in further retribution, Calendar promptly founded a Federalist newspaper um, in Richmond and turned his pen toward further anti-Jefferson invective. His drinking uh, increased, he was disappointed in his own fate, and he eventually drowned in a river in Richmond. Um, Jefferson did nothing to change the way he dealt with the press. He offered praise and subvention to a partisan press who favored him and earned rebuke from Federalist newspapers like the newly established New York Evening Post created by Alexander Hamilton and still publishing today. Um, and he was given much of the same kind of criticism, personal as well as political, that uh, Washington had engendered. He was criticized for offering Thomas Paine, who had so virulently criticized Washington, the use of a naval ship to get him back from France to the United States. He was vilified by the, by the Federalist press for that. Um, now he lamented the malignant, there's that word again that Washington used, and long continued efforts which the Federalists exert in the newspapers. They never utter a truth. Every syllable from me is distorted. Um, he even added a kind of revealing postscript that uh, um, gave a little hint of his feelings about organized religion. Jefferson said, like the clergy, the press live by the zeal they can kindle and the schemes they can create. They print only the caricatures of disaffected minds. Um, and then he added, almost in imitation of Washington's farewell, the artillery of the press has been leveled against us, charged with whatever its licentiousness could devise or dare, hinting that such abuses sap the safety of freedom of the press itself. That was kind of a veiled threat. And he added, it is so difficult to draw a clear line of separation between the abuse and the wholesome use of the press, that as yet we have found it better to trust the public judgment rather than the magistrate with the discrimination between truth and falsehood. One of my favorite Jefferson and the press stories occurred in 1807, uh, a year before the end of his second term. Um, he's pretty exhausted by dealing with journalists too. That, that uh, year, a precocious 17-year-old, a Virginian, named John Norvell, he hailed from what is now Danville, Kentucky, wrote to the president to say, and think of this, he's 17 years old, it would be a great favor to have your opinion of the manner in which a newspaper to be most extensively beneficial should be conducted, as I expect to become the publisher of one in just a few years. Well, Jefferson replied, and I think he got a lot off his chest in the reply. I'm not sure young, young John understood everything, but this is what Jefferson wrote, by restraining it to true facts and sound principles only. Yet I fear such a paper would find few subscribers. It is a melancholy truth 
that a suppression of the press could not more completely deprive the nation of its benefits than is done by its abandoned prostitution to falsehood. General facts may indeed be collected, but no details can be relied on. Perhaps a newspaper editor might begin a reformation um, in some way as this, divide his paper into four chapters. The first truths, the second probabilities, the third possibilities, and the fourth lies. The first chapter, truths, would be very short as it would contain little more than authentic news. Um, the second would contain what from a mature consideration his judgment should conclude to be true. The third and fourth would be for those readers who would rather have lies for their money than the blank paper they would occupy. Pretty strong words, pretty sophisticated. By the way, 19 years later, John Norbell did launch a paper, the Baltimore Whig at age 36. And eventually he worked for such papers as the Baltimore Patriot, the Kentucky Gazette. And then he founded the Philadelphia Inquirer, what is now the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, when for all his loyalty, he asked for a federal job, he got one. Um, and later, uh, as a coda to this really interesting human interest story, he became a United States Senator from Michigan, but that's another story. Well, Thomas Jefferson spent his famous long retirement, not only engaging in his famous correspondence with John and Abigail Adams on a variety of subjects, including recriminations and regrets about James T. Callender, but complaining about newspapers. And I'm gonna read for some for, about some of his um, um, anger, uh, but it's not all in correspondence to the Adamses, but some of it is. So these are the famous quotes. Nothing can now be believed which it is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. The man who never looks into a newspaper is better informed than he who reads them, inasmuch as he who knows nothing is nearer to the truth than he whose mind is filled with falsehoods and errors. I have given up newspapers for Tacitus and Thucydides, and I find myself much the happier. I deplore the putrid state into which our newspapers have passed, the vulgarity and the mendacious spirit of those who write for them. They are rapidly depraving the public taste and lessening its relish for sound food. Um, I have no news but that from the newspapers, and believing little of that, it would be unworthy to present it to my friends. In his final years, he insisted to one correspondent, um, I don't take this seriously, that the only newspaper he read was the Richmond Inquirer. But he added in that, chiefly the advertisements, for they contain the only truths to be relied on in a newspaper. And yet he never threw away a paper. For when he donated thousands of his books to establish the collections of the Library of Congress, with them, came 60 years of newspapers that he had never thrown away. And he admitted of the entire trove, I cherish it. So in his last letter, this master of democratic gospel uh, boasted of the blessing America had granted its citizens, the free right the, to the unbounded exercise of reason and freedom of opinion. Because in his moments when he thought of the ideal America, perhaps the ideal press, 
as he told Lafayette, the only security of all is in a free press. The force of public opinion cannot be resisted when it is permitted freely to be expressed. The agitation it produces must be submitted to. It is necessary to keep the waters pure. As he had famously put it in 1816, where the press is free and every man is able to read, all is safe. If Jefferson never fully practiced what he preached, well, neither did any other president. And none ex ever expressed the ideal of press liberty more memorably and more often than the complicated Thomas Jefferson. So as you heard in the introduction, I don't cover some of the other Virginia presidents, either in my book or in tonight's talk, only because I did not do 45 or 44 chapters. There are only 44 men who served. I didn't cover Madison or Monroe or Harrison or Tyler or Zachary Taylor in my book, although I, I must admit I was drawn to Taylor, um, if only because of Abraham Lincoln's involvement in editing a campaign newspaper uh, back in Illinois in Taylor's behalf uh, in 1848. Um, I, I was afraid that readers might not be as, as enthralled by that little diversion as I was. But I do want to uh, conclude uh, the, this uh, trio with the Virginia-born Woodrow Wilson. Um, and he had a tough go with the press. For one thing, he followed Theodore Roosevelt, the most innovative, uh, charismatic, and uh, accessible American president in history up to that point. Uh, and one reporter wrote that going from the Roosevelt era to the Wilson era was like going from a foundry into a convent. One journalist said that Wilson never forgets that he's a professional historian and the writer of history does not like a crowd. And that included, as this journalist uh, was hinting, crowds of journalists. By, by ancestry and early experience alone, Wilson should have done better. His paternal grandfather, James Wilson, had worked for the Philadelphia Aurora when it was run by an editor named William Duane, also anti-Washington. Um, he became its editor and he named his firstborn William Duane Wilson. The youngest son, Woodrow Wilson's father, was Joseph Ruggles Wilson. He was a theologian, but he served 11 years as editor of the North Carolina Presbyterian. Woodrow Wilson's brother became a newspaper editor and Woodrow himself was editor of his college paper, the Princetonian, and contributed articles to the New York Evening Post, Century Magazine, and the Atlantic. Yet there's something about the presidency um, that um, ruins even, the, at least in terms of relation to the press, ruins even those who are schooled in journalism. Um, as Wilson put it, these are his words, without thinking too highly of newspaper men, I do realize they are men who, when you get close to them, can understand things, can understand more things in five minutes than most other men can understand in half an hour. Faint praise, no, this was what he said to the New York Press Club, not exactly words that would endear him to reporters. So if he wasn't outright hostile, then he was maddeningly reserved and prickly in his dealings with the press. He was innovative, as I'll discuss in a minute, he staged the first official White House press conferences, but he made reporters write their questions in advance and often offered 
kind of crabby replies. And he absolutely hated reporting on his family, even though uh, the Teddy Roosevelt era had seen quite a bit of reporting on Teddy's uh, uh, daughter, Alice Roosevelt, and his adorable sons. When a photographer once took a picture of uh, Wilson's daughter riding a bicycle, imagine the shame, Wilson threatened to punch him in the nose. And he added, and I'm just the man to do it. When another correspondent wrote that um, the first lady's social events were duller than Mrs. Taft's, Wilson said, if I could reach him, he would, I would thrash the writer with my own hands. He demanded they stop writing about his daughter's social lives. Um, he made a plea on that in uh, one of his press conferences and the reporter said, well, could we put it on the record? And he backed down. Privately, a journalist said Wilson was full of hot blood, but in public and in front of formal press gatherings, he remained a glacial, forbidding, inhuman sort of monstrosity. Well, that was not the description of a good relationship between the president and the press. Running in 1912 um, against Taft and TR, he faced a Roosevelt who outdazzled him, and he knew it. As Wilson lamented, Teddy appeals to their imagination. I do not. He is a real vivid person. I am a vague conjectural personality. We will see what happens. Um, it, it was a new milieu, front page journalism, not partisan journalism. And the front page is where Teddy Roosevelt excelled. But Wilson also got into hot water in 1912 in the endorsement game too, editorials. The labor press disliked him because of his previous criticism of unions. The foreign language press, and there was a huge number of uh, foreign language newspapers at that time in America, recalled his criticism of Eastern and Southern European immigrants in the book that he wrote, The History of the American People. The black press attacked him over the stubbornly um, unbreakable color line at Princeton, where he had been president. Wilson's professional response was to hire as his public relations chief for the campaign, Josephus Daniels, uh, an editor from North Carolina who advocated for the disenfranchisement of black voters, and his own brother, Joseph Wilson Jr., who was editor of the Nashville Banner. Wilson won the election, but lost the confidence of many newspaper readers, not to mention writers. Now, there were those who, who rushed in to help, and they were admirers of Wilson's reform progressive agenda. Like a man who I've written about in my Lincoln books as well, Oswald Garrison Villard, the editor of the New York Post. He was the grandson of the abolitionist and editor, William Lloyd Garrison. Um, he was the son of Henry Villard, a journalist who had gone on to be an editor and a railroad executive who had enjoyed daily access to Abraham Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois. Well, Villard Jr. extracted from Wilson a promise that he would be president of the whole nation and would know no differences in race, creed, or color. The Crisis, the magazine of the NAACP, endorsed Wilson for president that year. Villard's mother had been a co-founder of the NAACP, and perhaps that helped along the way. 
But the New York Age, a hugely influential black paper, opined the Negro in the US cannot support Wilson without becoming a traitor to himself and to his race. Well, entering office, Wilson admitted the public man who fights newspapers will not be a public man very long. So on March 15th, 11 days after his inauguration, he holds his first press conference. Between 80 and 100 journalists crowded into the East Room. Wilson did the entire event standing up uh, without a podium. He thanked them and he said, I believe a large part of the success of public affairs depends on you newspaper men, not on the editorial writers, because we can live down what they say, but upon the news writers, because the news is the atmosphere of public affairs. Unless you dispense the right impressions, thing go, things go wrong. So Wilson got it. He just couldn't do it. Because the next thing he did is ask the reporters to cover him from the country in and not from Washington out. Help me, he said. Help everybody else by swathing my mind in the atmosphere and thought of the United States. Well, the journalists didn't like that. Um, they didn't like the suggestion. And indeed, it showed a fundamental misrepresentation of the relationship. It wasn't their job. Their job was not to report the country to the president. It was to report the president to the country. As one reporter wrote of the press conference, a pleasant time was not had by all. Yet to his credit, Wilson held 60 news conferences in the next nine months, 60. 68 in 1914, though it dwindled in number to just 19 uh, in 1915. Wilson called it intellectual combat, but altogether um, 170 news conferences handling between six and 20 written questions at each. Yes, he complained about fake news. Yes, he could get angry at reporters. He once replied to one press question by saying, I'm not as big a fool as you think. And if you'll just go on that assumption, it would correct a good many of your news items. And believe it or not, and I cued my Lincoln cup at just the right moment because I was going to say, Wilson could also be funny in an almost Lincoln-esque way. When one reporter asked him upon the death of a Supreme Court justice, the morning after, whether he had any ideas about a replacement, Wilson said, that reminds me of a story, very Lincoln-esque. Uh, the story of the widow who was proposed to just as soon as she reached her house after her husband's funeral. And she told the gentleman caller she was very sorry, but a man had beaten him to it by proposing at the grave. No, Wilson did not reveal his nominee. Um, stubbornly, maybe self-destructively, he refused to meet his press nemesis, William Randolph Hearst. He barred Villard from the White House for a while. Um, he was crabby about the press. He even canceled his subscription to his alumni magazine. As for the black press, a growing force in America, they had no way in. Now, in fairness, um, and this is a crystal ball into the future. Franklin Roosevelt did not allow a, an African-American reporter into a White House news conference until 1944, until he had conducted about 800 of his 1,000 twice-weekly press briefings. But Oswald Villard finally got Wilson to meet the journalist Monroe Trotter, um, and it was a disaster. Wilson at one point replied to Trotter's plea of 
people rights by saying, you've spoiled the whole cause for which you came. And then he had him ushered out. And that brings us to World War I and a big change. Wilson, um, instead of meeting the press, created the Committee for Public Information, run, um, meanwhile, shutting himself off from the press. Uh, the CPI, run by a former newspaper man named George Creel, was an unprecedented propaganda machine. Um, it also censored news as no president uh, since Adams and Abraham Lincoln. Um, Creel wrote, it, was it will be necessary to keep information from our own people in order to keep it from his enemy. For a time, it was a self-regulated industry, but there was also a, a, um, a prop, an act um, in which newspaper, under which newspaper men could in fact be prosecuted. And several were during World War I. But the most astonishing thing about the CPI to me was its outreach, functioning practically as a state news agency in so many areas, a speaker's bureau, a picture bureau, a slide bureau, a poster bureau. Remember the James Montgomery flag poster, I Want You, the recruiting poster? That came out of the CPI. Thousands and thousands of news releases, 6,000 in all, uh, sometimes 10 a day, a foreign section that kept disobliging American news from Europe, four minute men who were trained to give speeches uh, uh, extolling the, uh, the, the American effort to fight the Huns in World War I, um, a state fair division that's, that papered uh, state agricultural fairs with pamphlets. And my favorite, the training of men who were able to give 90 minute pro-American speeches in movie theaters. Why was that important? Because 90 seconds was the time it took to change the reels in silent movies with the old time projectors. And they had people to jump on the stage and give um, um, uh, patriotic talks. The only thing Wilson resil resent, uh, resisted was what was called a colored news division. He said, I've received several delegations of Negroes and I am under the impression that they have gone away dissatisfied. A new effort would do no good. Yes, there was a dark side to the CPI. The socialist paper, The Call, was shut down, the Milwaukee Journal, the Yiddish language Jewish Daily Forward. To his enormous credit, Wilson shut down the CPI on November 14, 1918, just three days after Armistice Day. And I want to end with uh, a story um, that's almost a story about on me as much as it's a story about Wilson. He took a big press contingent to the Paris Peace Conference. Um, people were surprised, even Clemenceau was surprised and he was a former journalist. Although once he was there, he didn't give them much access. Um, and when he was in Paris, he got sick. It was described, if it was described at all as a terrible cold, but Wilson disappeared for days. Some said he, he nearly died or at least that he was raving. What was it? Well, historians now believe that Wilson came down with the Spanish flu, the epidemic that was ravaging uh, the United States that year and the previous year. I didn't put this anecdote in the book. When I finished the book in about January of uh, 20, 2020 uh, and, and shut it down at that point, 
I thought to myself, I've got to cut somewhere. It's a big book. And why would anyone really care about a pandemic? It happened 100 years ago, and it will never happen again. Well, one has to be careful. Of course, the rest of Wilson's presidency was a story of further concealment of health problems. As we know, he had a stroke. Um, it was He was hidden from the press and from the public, except for very friendly journalists who got glimpses of him sitting on the outdoors on the porch of the White House or got interviews and covered up as neatly as Wilson's wife did. When Wilson died, the AP reporter David Lawrence, who had covered him, wrote, nothing seems so surprising as the relationship that existed between Woodrow Wilson and the press. From the beginning of his public career to the end, they constituted a series of misunderstandings and unfortunate clashes. Wilson disagreed with the methods of American journalism, Lawrence wrote. And he might have added, he stubbornly failed to adapt to them, even if he knew better, even if they were the conduit for memorializing his great progressive reforms, and in fact, providing the proverbial first draft of history in his favor. Wilson went to his grave insisting he was always misjudged. He said, I've never read an article about myself in which I recognized myself. But that's what they all say, non-Virginians too. George Washington had said much the same thing, as had Thomas Jefferson. Abraham Lincoln believed it as well. And, and as we all know, Donald Trump um, has basically articulated the same sense of indignation at his press coverage. Every president loves the press that's favorable to him and detests and objects to the press that criticizes him. The names and issues may change, the regions from which presidents hail may change, but one thing has not changed. The presidents think the press treats them unfairly, either appreciates them too little or criticizes them too much. And the press in turn think the presidents misjudge and watch out, underestimate them and warp their reports on his accomplishments. A few like Washington, Jefferson, Wilson, and I'm sure you can think of one or two others have considered the press to be actual enemies of the people. At least the Virginia presidents believed in the concept, the sacred concept of press freedom, even if they didn't always possess the high tolerance and thick skin the relationship requires. Well, the last word goes to the first president. Just a few months before he took office, George Washington declared that he still believed that newspapers remained, as he put it, vehicles of knowledge more happily calculated than any other to preserve liberty, stimulate the industry, and meliorate the morals of an enlightened and free people. And then he took the oath of office. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Holzer, so much. Uh, a very illuminating and timely subject, I must say. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And we welcome in the last few minutes of uh, our time with Mr. Holzer, uh, the opportunity for all of you to ask questions about the relationships between uh, the presidents and the press. and. Um, I'm curious, and I'm sure many of our, our, our viewers are, 
um, about this, this rather remarkable transition uh, that occurs between uh, the period when we're, we're relegated mostly to a, a paper press uh, to, to film and then to broadcast media. And, and what, what kind of impact did that have on the relationship between presidents and the press? They're even under a much finer microscope now than they ever had been. Um, well, let me give one, one brief answer first is that every um, innovation and every um, modernization and expansion of the media has been treated as the be all and end all. So when newspapers went from thrice weekly to daily, that was considered almost intrusive in terms of frequency. And that was 200 years before Twitter. So it was ever thus. Each new innovation brings a more intense and immediate press. And each seems breathtakingly modern and maybe even a little bit uh, disturbing to the people who live through it. But I have two themes in the book. One is that, and as I just, you know, um, articulated, I hope, uh, that twas ever thus. The relationship is fraught. It's always been fraught. It always will be fraught with variations, of course. But I also have another thread, and that is the presidents who mastered communications as an art and communicated most uh, adeptly and adroitly with those who mastered technological innovation. And you can go back to TR with newsreels. Although when newsreels were developed, he lost the 1912 presidential election. But the examples I give that um, many people recall um, or their parents recall is FDR's use of radio, 28 fireside chats, which were considered shocking to many newspaper editors that he would use the airwaves that were reserved for Jack Benny and Burns and Allen. And only 28, but they seemed, I mean, my parents told me that Roosevelt was on the air all the time. Um, that's how it felt, along with 1,000 press conferences. John F. Kennedy and the televised news conference um, also revolutionized communication and enabled him to go around media scrutiny and speak directly to television audiences and Donald Trump and Twitter. He's ma he mastered that medium and for three years of his four years, he set the tone of daily cable coverage according to what he tweeted in the morning, which is a pretty amazing achievement um, by an American president seeking to circumvent the press. Obama to a certain degree also with the White House website and the beginnings of social media. So one of the hallmarks of, of our press is freedom of the press. And one of our, our viewers had asked, if you're aware of any instances where there was actually any censorship uh, in the press, maybe perhaps um, a provocation by a president. So um, I think the four big examples, well, maybe five. One will surprise the audience, I think. There was Adams and the Sedition Act. It didn't pre-censor, but it post, it punished. Lincoln, um, during the Civil War, uh, closed down more than 200, well, the administration and the army, and in some cases, Lincoln himself, closed down more than 200 border state and northern newspapers during the Civil War, beginning with the um, explanation that they wanted to prevent further secession in Missouri and Kentucky and Maryland. 
But after the Union lost the Battle of Bull Run and 90-day enlistments ended, any newspaper that argued against re-enlistment was subject to be closed down by the government. And this happened in New York and New Jersey and Illinois and Indiana, Maine, Massachusetts. And it continued throughout the war with breaks only for, for um, congressional and presidential campaigns when Lincoln turned back to the open press uh, through which he had risen, of course. Um, Wilson, definite censorship. The Espionage Act of 1918 was cited in closing down newspapers, limiting radio broadcasts. Uh, and to some degree, Roosevelt in during World War II, uh, under the loose lips sink ships doctrine, information was withheld. Roosevelt became scarce in terms of news conferences. He, he um, went on some secret missions that the press was not allowed to follow on, including his meeting in Canada with Winston Churchill before the war began. And um, um, Barack Obama uh, used, cited the Espionage Act of 1918, which apparently is still on the books, to wiretap a New York Times reporter and his family um, in search for leaks uh, when he was president. Um, I was astonished in my research to find out, find out how many reporters thought that Obama was in fact the most distant uh, and inaccessible president in their times. Now they may want to revise that opinion now, but I was still surprised. Well, you referenced uh, Wilson in World War One. You know, it's 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 also interesting to think about the the impact and influence that presidents can have on the press and and how they communicate with the public during times of war. And uh, I wondered if you had any thoughts or anything that was in your book that related to uh, how how effective a president might have been to influence public opinion about conflicts uh, through the press. I think uh, most notably. Uh, John F. Kennedy during the Vietnam War, um, and Lyndon B. Johnson, in fact, uh, and, and Kennedy would, President Kennedy Lincoln. would argue that it was before the Vietnam War, yeah. just the beginnings of it. Yeah, there are some great examples. Um, and um, I'll give you an example that um, is quite local to our audience. During the, the last days of the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln spent a, an extraordinary amount of time embedded with uh, Grant's army in and around Petersburg. And ultimately, of course, he visited Richmond. But Lincoln began sending dispatches to the War Department reporting on the progress of, of the Petersburg siege and the march toward, toward Richmond. Um, and those dispatches were published on the front pages of the newspapers in the closing days of the war, when in fact, Lincoln was not only uh, commander-in-chief, he was correspondent, war correspondent-in-chief. Um, but uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, who, you know, in my mind, justly gets much criticism for the expansion of the unwinnable war in Vietnam, I think deserves credit for allowing the press to continue to cover the war without restriction. Don't forget the, the, the famous documentary that Walter Cronkite presented, which this man who had never rendered an opinion in his career said, Publicly, I think the time may have come when America should seek an honorable way to withdraw from Vietnam. Making Johnson realize, as he put it, if I've lost Johnson, I've lost 
middle America. That only happened because there were no restrictions placed on coverage. Um, that was not the case in, in uh, Iraq. It was not the case in uh, Afghanistan. So that openness has in fact vanished from war coverage. And the irony for Johnson, whether you think it was deserved or not, is that um, his willingness to allow open reporting to continue proved to be his downfall. Do you think that there are any presidents that had an especially good relationship with the press on a more consistent basis? It seems like even since Washington's time, it's been a love-hate relationship, yeah. uh, almost acrimonious at times. But uh, is there any president that uh, you think really rises above the rest in terms of having uh, you know, an especially good relationship with the press that was long-lasting? That, that's a great question. And of course, through the entire 19th century, presidents were always chummy and gave political rewards and jobs and printing contracts to newspapers of their party because newspapers and the political parties were connected or interconnected. In the 20th century, I think Roosevelt, TR, had a really good relationship. He was the perfect character for the transition from partisan journalism and yellow journalism to front page journalism. He allowed the press corps into the White House to have their own room. Um, he allowed journalists into the Oval Office every day at 1 p.m. to watch him being shaved. And since Roosevelt was a multitasker, they got to ask questions. And he was great copy. What's not to like for a reporter? Now, he, you know, he argued with them. Uh, he criticized them. He put them in a kind of purgatory that he created if somebody wrote something that he didn't like that they could earn their way out of it. But they, I think they liked him, and they liked him because he was great copy. Um, FDR, I think, remarkably had a long, long relationship, long, good relationship, in a, in a period when in none of his four elections did the majority of newspaper editors endorse him for president. It's pretty amazing, not even in 1936, when he won 46 of the 48 states. Never, and he resented it, but the working press just liked him a lot. And they left recollections that indicated that. Yes, they got tired eventually of his of his, his routine, but a thousand news conference, that's a heck of a lot of accessibility. And the other demonstration is there was a, for the first nine years, eight years of his presidency, there was no rule against taking pictures of Roosevelt in his wheelchair. Yet only four such pictures exist in the thousands of pictures in the FDR library. There was a gentleman's agreement. They just didn't want to make life harder for him. They cut him a break, no pictures. He used to joke, no pictures of me in the machine boys, meaning being lifted in and out of automobiles. And if you've ever seen a newsreel of that, of, there's one newsreel showing him being lifted, put into a car at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn in 1944. And they just push him a little too hard and he just falls straight down like a doll. It wasn't pleasant and it was, embarrassing for him, but no reporting of it. He fell at the 1936 Democratic Convention, reaching to shake someone's hand, he just went down. People simply formed a circle around him and there were no pictures. And that's an amazing bit of friendly concealment. Not, it would never happen today. Um, and similarly, John F. Kennedy had a pretty good relationship with the press in his brief tenure. Um, he had been a newspaper man in post-war Europe 
He had a lot of chums who were journalists. He played golf with reporters. He was close to Ben Bradley of the Washington Post. And um, yes, they gave him a hard time over the Bay of Pigs. And he gave them a hard time in the Cuban Missile Crisis by restricting access. But he manipulated them like crazy. And um, the proof of that kind of relationship, as it was with FDR, is in the concealment game. Journalists knew that, FD, that uh, JFK had serious illnesses. And yet, I remember the Kennedy era. The only thing we ever heard was that he had a bad back and that his doctor prescribed a rocking chair for him, hence the Kennedy rocking chair. Nobody knew about the other ailments or about the injections. Um, and also, they turned a blind eye or maybe even gave a wink to his extramarital affairs because it wasn't something that they thought they should cover. Um, so again, that was the end of the Nixon era brought an end to that kind of, um, you know, turn the blind eye journalism. It will never happen again, I'm sure. But I would put those three, uh, the two Roosevelts and Kennedy, among the, the best relationships with the press. Well, the presidency has been called a glorious burden and the relationship that uh, our presidents have had with the press it probably is, uh, is certainly no small part of, the, of that burdensome aspect of it. So again, uh, Harold Holzer, thank you so much uh, for a very illuminating discussion uh, and a very timely one as well. We appreciate it so much. Um, thank you, thank and, you for that. Uh, uh, before we sign off, uh, just a, a reminder of our next uh, banner lecture, which is going to be uh, next Wednesday at noon. Uh, Christian Keller will be with us virtually uh, to talk about his latest book, The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. Uh, thank you so much again, and please take care. Good night. Good night.